Take your Bible, if you would, and join us today in Romans chapter number one. Romans chapter number one. We live in a day right now, while you're turning, we live in a day where I suspect there are more photographs taken than at any other time in the history, of course, of mankind. Certainly there was a time in in our history when photographs were not possible. There were mental pictures that were made and certainly those are still vivid in their own right. But a picture, sometimes we refer to it as a portrait, maybe a more formal picture. It, It captures something. So when your picture is taken, and today we have, we have immediate access. Now, some of you remember, it's somewhat novel now, but some of you remember when a picture could be instantly or almost instantly viewed. You took a, a Polaroid picture and the, the picture would, would start to slowly eject from the camera and then you would take this, this white piece of paper and you'd begin to wave it like this and then magically you know, images would begin to appear. So today it's a somewhat of a novelty, but you look at a picture, whether it's a Polaroid or someone takes a picture on their camera and then then you look and they hand it to you because you're in the picture. Let's say it's a picture with you and several other people. Who do you look at first? Well, typically, you look at yourself first. Now, this is not a message on the sinful pride of looking at how wonderful you are. Okay, this is not that message. But, but we usually do look at ourselves first. And for what purpose? You say, because I'm the best looking one. That, no, no, that's not the reason why. Why do you look at yourself first? Well, I suspect it is because of this reason. We want to see how the picture captured us at that moment. You know, today we take so many pictures and and you can take them and retake them and and you can edit, modify. We, We say you can Photoshop the picture, but how many of you remember the time when you would actually send film in and have it developed? And then they'd send you a little envelope back and you'd pull the pictures out and you'd begin to looking through the pictures and then... How many of you had most of your pictures taken with your eyes half closed, okay? Because it captured you at a particular specific moment in time. If you could only use a word or very few words to capture you, I know pictures are taken all the time and what they do is they capture at a moment in time you, The portrait of, but if you connected a word to you, not just an image, but a word, what kind of words would you begin to use to, Lord willing, accurately self-define? Now, we wouldn't want to say too much to appear arrogant. We wouldn't want to say too little to have some false sense of humility. But what are the words that you would use to describe you? For example, Would you use some kind of a title that is yours? And sometimes we start to think about these titles and like, oh, these titles are important. Husband, mother, friend, doctor, leader, teacher, executive, CEO, owner, and so on. 
What word might you use? That would be the word that would self-define or picture you in a word. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at some portraits of portraits of they are captured by words although I think they were seen by the snapshots so to speak of life and as we begin we start to see a self-defined portrait a word that is used to picture a man and it's a word that you and I might seldom choose of ourselves as that picture of who we are Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse number 1. Paul, you may recall that that word means small. This man's name used to be Saul. It meant desired, one who has something that others certainly want. But he changes his name when he came to Christ. He never again self-defines himself as desired, Now he redefines himself as small and now look at how he immediately presents himself. The portrait, so to speak, of this small one. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Do you know the first snapshot, the first portrait we see of this one is summed up in two words. Number one, owned, and number two, mastered. Number one, he is owned and mastered. And he summarizes this in Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. This is not gonna be lost on Paul's readers that he is, he's not only borrowing a phrase from the Old Testament, a person who might say a servant of God or a servant of the Lord, all capital letters, a servant of Jehovah. It wouldn't be lost on them that now he has restated this. Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a literal statement that he makes here and it becomes this seamless transition from the Lord Jehovah to the Lord who is Jesus the Christ. And he says, I am his, and he uses the word doulos. There are other Greek words that Paul could have used to communicate the idea of servant. For example, another word servant in scripture is paes. It's a bit more noble of a term, but it still means servant. However, the Holy Spirit tells Paul, use the word doulos. How many of you would seek to self-describe in a word yourself as a bond slave? Hey, tell me who you are. I am a bond slave. That term conjures up many, even hostile feelings in our minds. We have these images of wrongs that have been been perpetrated upon mankind people have been subjected to that which is inhumane and we say ah who would want to use that term that term is not lost on Paul nor is it lost on his readers when the apostle says I am Paul I am a doulos 
of Jesus Christ. He is saying, I am a bond slave of Christ. And he not only owns me, he has mastered me. Again, these are terms that I understand the the implications of the words, but we can't get away from what it is that the scripture is saying. We, We use terms now like slave and master. Paul is saying, I am his bond servant, his slave, and he is my master. Okay, you have to understand that if you don't put those two together, what good is the one as it pertains to Paul and Christ if you don't have the other? What good would it do for Paul to say, yeah, I'm his servant, but I'm telling you, I don't like it. Yeah, I'm his, I'm his, he owns me. I'm his bond slave. I get it, but he's not mastered me. What good is the beautiful horse, so to speak, out in the pasture if it won't be ridden? What good is that powerful stallion with all that it offers if it won't allow its owner to, in a sense, master it? But how powerful and what beautiful symmetry, so to speak, when the horse and the rider seem to function as one because each has, in a sense, given themselves to the other. At times we may take some measure of pride in the fact that no one can tell me what to do. We are not mastered. The problem lies in the fact that someone is actually telling us what to do. We've just become servant to in a sense a bad master. Throughout the history of mankind, we've understood what is meant by the term slavery. And while we do have some common understanding that the Bible addresses the matter of slavery, we should also note that the Bible pattern of becoming a servant was vastly different from what we understand in more modern days with the term slavery. In Exodus chapter 21, it details much of this. A Hebrew could actually, as presented in Scripture, where the Bible interjects itself into the culture and into the times, a Hebrew could actually buy another Hebrew. However, there seems to be this understanding that there's almost a contractual agreement. Let me ask you, have you ever signed a contract pledging yourself and your services to another. There appears to be some sense of understanding that, hey, we're coming into a mutual agreement. It's not that another person says, I have forcibly taken you. Now there's this sense of I enter into something and the contract lasts for this period of time. And then it concludes with some very desirable conclusions. For example, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 21, verse 2, It says, if thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve thee. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, he doesn't owe you a thing. He is free from his services. Further, scripture does not condone the violent use of another. There was not only a contractual understanding, but also an agreement that provided compensation much like an employer-employee arrangement today. I'm going to read a little bit longer passage, but I want us to get the idea that you should not be using Scripture 
In fact, did you know that, that um, at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., there's actually a Bible that is called the Slave Bible? Do you know what they did with this book? They took out major sections of scripture and they would give the Bible to the slave as a reason to continue on the use of slavery. Well, they modified scripture. You shouldn't modify scripture to accomplish anything. You should be modified by scripture. Okay, so let's look a little bit further and see what does the Bible actually say about this arrangement? This is in Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. And if thy brother and Hebrew man, we're talking about Hebrews interacting with Hebrews. And if thy brother and Hebrew man or an Hebrew woman be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. We read that in Exodus 21. Verse 13. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, out of thy floor, out of thy winepress, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore, I command thee this day, and it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go from thee. Why? Because he loveth thee and thine house, because he is well with thee. Then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he shall be thy servant forever. And also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do it likewise. It shall not seem hard unto thee when thou sendest him away from thee. For he hath been worth a double hired servant to thee in serving these six years. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all that thou doest. Do you know what the Bible's laying out for us here? It's laying out what we refer to as some kind of a contractual understanding. There is a beginning to this. There's an ending to this. And not only when he's done is he free and clear. You bought, there was money exchanged at the beginning. Hey, listen, uh, uh, okay, so we need X, Y, and Z. Okay, I'm going to go serve as a bond slave and I'm going to do so for six years. And when those six years have concluded, I'm free. And God says to the one who came into this agreement, now you send him out with something as well. He's going to have some recompense for his service. What does it mean then when the Apostle Paul starts to come into this, this arrangement with Jesus Christ? Basically what the Apostle Paul says is, Jesus, you take me to the doorpost and you strike the all through my ear and let it be assigned to every person that it is well with me to have you as my master and I am your bond slave. Do you know what Paul is exampling for us? Do you know the portrait, portrait that is pictured here? The portrait, the portrait that is pictured is there is one who does not hesitate to say, there's another who owns me. His name is Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my master. Consider three important portraits or characteristics of servants. First of all, servants were owned. Ye are bought with a price. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, 23, be not ye the servants of men. Do you know he's saying there is some ownership that's been transferred. You were bought with a price. Now you were serving, you were serving yourself, you were serving others. He says, but you were bought with a price. Don't be a servant to your old masters. You've been purchased. 
Am I portraying the life of one who is actually owned by Christ? Ownership does come with rights. And if I am his, Lord, my rights are transferred to you. And then servants had no control over their labor. Second Timothy speaks of the man that is set apart and becomes, listen to verse 21 in Second Timothy 2. The man becomes a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet or fit for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Okay, not only am I owned, but I, I lose control then of my labor. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because I want to be a vessel, I want to be a servant unto honor that is fit for your use. So Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? Now remember, you're not just serving a guy who's a pretty good master. You're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, your creator God, the one who not only made you, but knows to what ends he has made you. Doesn't it make sense to throw ourselves, so to speak, into the hands of the one who says, listen, you're going to find the greatest fulfillment, the greatest usefulness, the greatest joy when you do what I have built you to do. So not only does a slave, a servant know I'm owned, I am under the control of the one who owns me. I have no control over my own labor. That's his. And then next, Servants surrendered themselves over to the complete direction of another. I know these are, these are things that just seem to, to go together. Okay, I'm owned and, and, um, and he gets to tell me what, I, what I'm going to do. And, and he's the one that provides my direction. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Paul says. He says with some, you know, some surprise, some shock. What? Didn't you know, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I'm bought with a price. Lord, what do you want me to do? What direction do you want me to go? How do you want me to serve? It's clear to all that God is the owner of my body. It should be clear that I am stewarding well that which is consistent with my owner, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 14, 80 says, for whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. And listen to how he concludes this. Whether we live or whether we die, he says it doesn't matter. We are the Lord's. And when we begin to approach him with that kind of resignation, God, I am yours. There is a picture, a portrait that's being made that says, Lord, I am owned and mastered by you. Okay, now, when you and I declare our freedom from God, we declare that that no one owns me. We actually surrender our true freedom and find that we are now indeed in bondage to a bad master. Again, it's been said that everyone serves someone, so choose a good master. In Exodus chapter 21, verses five and six, we we referred to this earlier. The Exodus passage repeats the Deuteronomy passage. It just says, if a servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. 
Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall bring him unto the door, unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. He found a good master. He said, listen, listen, I like this arrangement. I don't care what other people say. Oh, oh, oh yeah, I see the mark. You, you belong to someone else. He says, I own it. Listen, if you knew my master, you, you would serve him as well. He finally comes to the place where he says, listen, why do I want to go out from the one who actually loves me, cares for me, has provided for me? When a servant loved his master, he made the decision to stay with him forever. When you find a good master, one who loves you, provides for you, cares for you, has good plans for you, and has actually made it possible for you to become part of his family, sharing his resources, his promises, his future. And he even says, hey, you can take on my name. Why wouldn't anyone choose that master as actually his own father. Listen, there's nothing for Paul to hang his head about when he says, I am Paul, a servant, a doulos of Jesus Christ. We know that some people say, well, no, I'm, I'm not serving anyone. The, the truth of the matter is you are. No man can serve two masters, but everyone will serve one. We try to set up some counterfeit freedom but until we find freedom in surrender, we can never be truly free. For example, we serve a lot of bad masters. We serve the bad master of pride, the master of greed. Some of us are mastered by a pursuit of acceptance. How many are mastered by the bad master of lust? And that master it appears at times at a whim or at the littlest of notion has absolute control over the one he has in bondage and enslaved. How many times do we find the bad master of fear, the master of power, the master of anger, the master of anxiety and worry? Listen, there are a lot of bad masters and there is only one good. So like Joshua, we say, choose you this day who you will serve. Notice what kind of freedom comes when we declare ourselves the servants of God. I love this passage. It's Psalm 116, verse number 16. Listen to what he writes. He says, oh Lord, truly I am thy servant. That word servant is really the Hebrew equivalent to what we would look at as doulos in the New Testament. Oh Lord, I'm your slave, I'm your bond slave. Notice what the passage goes on and says. Oh Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. Did you hear what he just said? He said, I'm your bond slave and you actually released me from my bondage. I'm in servitude to you, and yet you freed me from the service of a bad master. I'm your servant. And here's what you did for me. In coming in bondage to you, you truly released me from my bondage. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8, verse 36. 
He said, if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed, or free in reality. It is incredible. When I become the servant of God, he releases me from my bondage. Freedom through service. What a portrait that Paul leaves for us here. Paul, a servant, and then he goes on and he says, called to be an apostle. It's literally, if you, if you look at it, it's literally called an apostle. He says, I was invited specifically. I, I'm called now an apostle. The, the word called here, it just means invited. And not everyone is invited. We might as well make this clear. Not everyone's invited to be an apostle. Saul, Paul was, but, but you and I are not invited to be apostles. Um, have you ever... Have you ever um, have you ever had the awkward situation where someone comes up and says, maybe you were 12, and they come up and they say, hey, are you going to, uh, are you going to Billy's birthday party? Billy's having a birthday party? Oh, never mind. You know, have you ever had one of those? It's a little awkward because some people were invited and you weren't invited and you feel a little, well, listen, you're not invited to be an apostle. Paul called to be an apostle, so, so he distinguishes this, but it is wonderful that he does say, now there is a universal invitation. And he goes on and he says, look at verse number six, the same word is used. Verse number six in your Bible, Romans one, verse six. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. You are the invited of Jesus Christ. He, he reiterates and actually expands it in verse number seven. Look at verse number seven. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called and then again the word to be is actually not in the original it's it's added for readability but it's really literally called uh, you know you're you're called to be saints do, do you know what he's telling us here he's saying hey listen there's something that you've been invited to be part of remember if the word called means invited paul's saying you are invited to come to christ in second peter chapter 3 verse 9 the apostle peter said that the lord is quote not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what this is? This is a universal appeal to every person within the sound of my voice. You are not all called to be apostles, but you are all invited. You are all called to come to the person of Jesus Christ. Have you accepted that invitation? There's nothing awkward about this here. I remember... I will share this briefly, but I was preaching to a group of teenagers one time and a teenager came up to me and I had made an invitation regarding the matter of salvation. Salvation, that means saved from the consequence of my sin. Saved from what sin does, sin separates. Saved from eternal separation from a loving God in a place that is created for the devil and his angels. Saved. I made a, a, a salvation appeal and a teenager came up to me afterwards and said, I don't think that applies to me. My parents told me that um, I was not part of those that are called. How in the world can you come to a conclusion that, that John 3.16 does not really apply to God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have 
everlasting life. Do you know what you're invited to do? This is an, this is an invitation to, to all mankind. You are invited to come to a loving, gracious Savior who's bought and paid for your salvation in its entirety. Christ died for sinners. Listen, are you a sinner? Well, he died in your place. He died taking your punishment. And then he proved he was God. He was buried. He he died. He was buried. And he rose again. The first fruits among many that would follow. If you've never come to Christ, he's saying right here, listen, you're invited to come to Jesus Christ. Now, remember before before Paul's conversion, he was sent out by Jewish um, um, leaders to capture believers. After his conversion, he was sent out. That's what apostle means. He was sent out by Jesus Christ to do the same thing. Capture others for the cause of Christ. And then I, I also want to take note that what, what happens now is we get the longest introduction in all of Paul's epistles. He starts to just introduce us to the subject of the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ. Look down at verse number three and, and just notice this ongoing introduction. Verse number three, Romans one. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh... And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. By whom we also receive grace and apostleship for obedience to faith among all nations for his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. In in these passages Paul is just speaking about the theme of all scripture Jesus Christ. He speaks of Christ's authority to dispense offices and to give Paul his office of apostle. And Paul is both called by Christ and commissioned by him as well. And then just pause. I can't just roll over this without taking a simple note. Every place you look, scripture is detailed. There are no lost words in the Bible. There's no filler. I don't know about you, but have you ever been speaking publicly? There's a lot of college students in here. How many of you have already taken um, first semester, like freshman, speech 101? How many of you have already taken that? How many of you remember when you had to stand up in front of people and speak publicly? How many of you ever had things that you were saying and you had no idea what you were saying? Many, okay. Have you ever just put it on autopilot before? Dr. Zach, have you ever just been talking before and it's like at times it's like, okay, well, what's going on back there? And so you're watching something, but all that time you're talking and you have no idea what you said, okay? That's not in scripture. There are no lost words in scripture. And do you know what, do you know what one of the, the, the detailed words that the Bible gives us in this passage? It says that Jesus was made. Made. Notice what it says. It says in in the verse number three, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David. Here, it does not say born of the seed of David. You and I were born of the seed of mankind. Jesus was made. We see this idea, it's even further brought out in Galatians chapter four, verse number four. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman and then it even goes further made under the law I was born of woman 
Jesus. Now, the Bible does say elsewhere, well, he was born. He was born. But it adds clarity to that understanding that he wasn't born in the natural, normal way. He was made. Why? Because he was uniquely different in his birth than you and I. He came of a woman, yes. He came under the law, yes. But not in the same way that you and I did. Why does the Bible take pains to detail this? Because of the precision of Scripture, helping us understand not only the sinless nature of Christ, but the miraculous aspect of his birth. Now, not only is Paul called to be an apostle, he's also separated unto the gospel. So what is this guy? He's owned and mastered. And then what else is he? He's called and separated. Separated unto the gospel. Galatians 1.15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. It's interesting that the word separated comes from a Greek word, aphorizo. It's an, it's an interesting word, aphorizo, which has the same root word as the title Pharisee. The Pharisees had set themselves apart. Well, we're, we're definitely set apart. They didn't want anything to do with the common people. They were different than all of them. The Pharisees clearly had set themselves apart, but Paul understood that Jesus Christ deserves no less. I am not separated like my former life as a Pharisee from people. No, now I am separated unto Jesus Christ for people. We may conclude that separation was important to Paul, But he was an apostle and I'm not, so it really doesn't matter to me. Paul addresses our separation all throughout Scripture as well. He details it or highlights it beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 14. Be ye, he's talking to me. He's saying, hey, Jeff, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. You and I are called to be separated from the world and unto God. It always involves leaving one thing to go to another. Listen, if I'm in Texas and I want to go to Florida, I leave one place in order to be at another. I have to leave my chair to come to the pulpit. I have to leave something behind and I have to go to something else. In his commentary, Donald Barnhouse wrote with an astute observation what this means to be separated. And I fear that that our assumptions of what this may look like is a broken assumption. In other words, often when we start to talk about separation, we start to understand, yes, now you just start talking about those who are doing this and this and this and this, and they shouldn't be doing that. And sometimes we communicate with others the, the, the terrible, despicable aspect of their involvement in all of these things that they should be separated from. 
And sadly, we, we never highlight or our life's not a picture of not so much of what I'm separated from, but who I am separated to. And notice what Barnhouse says. Look out among the people you know as Christians and you will discover two sorts. One rubs you the wrong way. The other fills you with admiration. One of them boasts that he doesn't do this and doesn't do that until you think that failing to do certain things is the whole of his religion. Those with whom he talks want to go out and do the very things he does not do as a sort of reaction against that in his life which is offensive. The other Christian strikes you as a holy person. You do not expect him to do certain things because you rather feel that he is possessed by higher motives. He has been in the presence of the Lord and is so filled with that presence that he draws you to Christ. If you are not this type of Christian, you are not what God wants. You may bleat from morning to evening that you do not get drunk and don't go in for carnal pleasures. But no one is listening to you. You have pumped a lot of things out of your life, but you have nothing else in their place. And even nature abhors a vacuum. What a powerful condemnation against vacuous believers, empty Christians. How different this is from those living with what we refer to as the fullness of the spirit. Do, you know, quite honestly, I do not look back on my blankie and say, oh, I so miss my blankie. Now, now it served a purpose for a time, but I, I have left the blankie behind. When I was a kid, I had a big wheel. and I love that big wheel. That was the biggest deal going in my neighborhood. But let me tell you, I don't miss my big wheel. Do you know what I like right now? I have a Honda 1800, okay? My big wheel had two foot power. I have 1800 horsepower. Listen, I love that deal. Do you know there's one that I left behind because there was something far better. Do you know, oftentimes we, we continue to lament the loss of, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. Isn't Christ better? And do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, listen, I'm owned, and I am mastered, and I am called. And because I have that call, I am separated to. That does mean separated from. Clearly it does. But I don't focus on what am I separated from so much as I focus on who I am separated to. God has separated you for some special task. He has been preparing you for, in a sense, a, a dual role. He has used your past for your present. And he is taking your present to use in your future. There is nothing wasted with God. Paul demonstrated no hesitation to say, I am a bond slave. My owner is Jesus Christ and he has given me something that he wants me to do. And I am passionate about accomplishing it. Based on the authority of my master, he's telling the Romans, I am writing to you now. If you are truly a Christian, you have an owner whose name is Jesus Christ. 
He has something he wants me and you to do. We should be passionate about accomplishing whatever it is that our owner desires. Remember, you don't have a choice in serving, but you do have a choice in who you will serve. No one has the choice of serving, just choosing. So will you serve? Yes. May you choose well.